0: People went to schools in the 1930s and 40s, they learned very little about slavery or African American experience. And it, it, it's, it's difficult history. Uh, the, 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 not just the demonstration of slavery, which is horrific, the way free black people in the North were denied rights, the failure of Reconstruction, the establishment of Jim Crow, all this went on well into the 20th century. And that's why Dr. King said we need, we need to do this again. Lincoln was trying to have a second birth of freedom. Well, a new birth of freedom, won another one in 1960s, 1960s America. And um, so now it's our turn. Now it's our, it's our turn. We are, I have two little boys and certainly a good life for them and all, all everybody's kids. Very few people want an America defined find division of violence and racism and Strife and unending uh, bitterness and suspicion. And, and, and I think most people would like to help be part of the solution.
1: This episode of Beyond Deporia originated in the Howenstein Center's webcast, Lunch and Learn with Gleaves, available at wwwgvsuedu hc. Welcome to the Hallenstein Center's live Q&A webcast, Lunch and Learn. I'm your host, Gleaves Whitney. I do not know any credible commentators out there who would deny that the United States is in a midst of a crisis, surely one of the greater crises in our 230-odd-year history. The impeachment of the 45th president, the novel coronavirus, a government-induced economic depression, enforced social distancing, all these cumulative stresses over the last four months have provided dry tender in the summertime heat. The flashpoint came on Memorial Day, of course, with the murder of George Floyd while in police custody. And it was the spark that ignited a nationwide conflagration of protests that are still flaring up in cities around the US. Well, to put the current crisis in perspective, I've asked my friend Jason Duncan to help us see past the heat of the moment. Jason, who has presented several times at the Howenstein Center, teaches American history at Aquinas College as its incoming history department chairman. In a previous life, he worked on the Hill for Ohio Congressman Tom Sawyer. Isn't that a great name? So he has both a wide political and history lens through which to view current events. My conversation with Jason will go 30 or 40 minutes or so, followed by questions from our viewers. So feel free to begin sending your questions to us right away using your Zoom toolbar to do so. Jason, thank you for joining me today. Good to be be with you. We're going to be talking about crises, but first, I've got to ask you about the title of your forthcoming book. It's so intriguing, The Little Magician's Greatest Trick. Tell us what that's about.
0: Well, the election of 1836 was a different type of election. The two parties were not fully formed yet. The Democratic Party, as it was called, calling itself, they had a national ticket, a national presence. and Buren was a candidate in every state in the, in the Union. But their opponents were more fragmented. It was the Northern Whig and Webster in Massachusetts. Western wag William and Harrison and in, in North and West in a sort of a way, but more of an anti mandarin Jacksonian Democrat in the South. And then South Carolina did its own thing. And that was the only state where the electors for president were not elected by the people, but by the same legislature. So Van Buren has many nicknames. That's the paradox of Van Buren. He seems to be kind of dull and uninteresting compared to vivid personalities like Jackson, Henry Clay, John C. Calhoun. But Americans in this age age, like to give their politicians nicknames. Like Henry Clay was Harry of the West, and uh, Hotspur, and Jackson was Old Hickory, and Hero of New Orleans, and maybe Calhoun didn't have a nickname because he was deathly serious about everything. Well, Van impaired had 25 nicknames, the cautious Dutchman. The Albany director, the sly fox, the red fox, the part Pope Martin, who was of to pro Catholic politics. The one that's most um, lasting is the little magician. He was about five, six, not short for his age or his era, but he was, as he aged, like most of us, he gained weight. And by the time he was running for president, he's now 48, not 52, and he was a little chubby. And he, had a, he, he, was, he, he was not as short as he looked, but he gave off that impression. And the nickname the magician was both an of admiration and contempt because he was very brilliant at putting together coalitions, building parties, getting unusual allies to work together. And it was all said and done as if people said it was done by magic. But of course, there's no magic in politics, it's hard work. It's persistence, it's instinct, it's 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 working with people. So trying to come up with a snazzy title that publishers love to sell books. I came up with "Little Magician," "Little Magician's Greatest Trick." The election of eighteen thirty-six in which he won. But I also thought I might switch it to the magician, the four, the party and the four Wigs because the party was his instrument and he among others, but in many ways, not he alone certainly, but he was one of, if not the mastermind behind creating new political parties in New York and then across the country. And eventually that becomes a Democratic Party. So the party is essential and then Beren thought parties are what are needed, not personalities. Like even one is like Jackson, or in New York his great rival was Dewitt Clinton. So for Van Buren, parties are enduring, not factions based on one person. And Americans take parties for granted. Of course, there's two political parties, right? There, there, there always has been. But every, everything has its history, including parties. And so Van Buren, even though his presidency was not successful, he was defeated for re-election in 1840, his lasting monument is the Democratic Party, in many ways. Now, he never gets, gets full credit for it, until recently, Democratic fundraising events known as Jefferson Jackson Day parties, not Van Buren Day events. Now, those have been renamed, reasons we can talk about. So, Van Buren is an important character in this book, he's not the only character, but it's not the 1836 is not the classic one-on-one battle like Adams Jefferson, Roosevelt Hoover, Nixon Kennedy. It's a in election, so it doesn't lend itself to that drama from a two-person. Okay, well, thanks for that overview. Yeah. Uh,
1: I, I I think uh, instead of having Jeff Jack parties, we got to have Little Magician <laughs> dinners. I think that that would be a great uh, a great way to sell tickets to these political yeah. fundraisers. Right. <laughs> Okay, very good. Well, let's now go to the theme that I announced in our introduction, some of the crises of American history. Jason, Mm -hmm. how American leaders have responded to them. Now, since you and I are historians, let's let's start chronologically. Mm -hmm. I think that'd be the best way. That's the way our minds work, you know, cause and effect, you know, we make our way through crises. What do you think is the first crisis as a nation that we faced?
0: Well, and I was going to start, and I will start the 1790s. But even before that, in the 1780s, some thought the country was falling apart. They were under like the Articles of Confederation, hence the need for a new constitution. But once the constitution is created, it took maybe a year or two for people like Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and others to think that the uh, program of Secretary of State or Secretary of the Treasury Hamilton. Was in some ways a betrayal of the revolution. It was pro-banking, pro-aristocracy, allegedly pro-corporation, pro-English, pro-small, and it seemed like the revolution was being hijacked right out of the gate. So a new party comes into being, led by Jefferson. It's the first opposition party in American history. Now, that was a crucial moment, the election of 1800. It's a convoluted election of Burr and Jefferson. High in the electoral college, but ultimately Jefferson wins. The key moment is really March 4th, 1801, or one of the key moments. John Adams gets on the four o'clock stage out of Washington, leaves the presidency to Jefferson, goes back up to New England. Some thought he should stay, stay stand his ground. Jefferson's a fanatic, he's an atheist, allegedly. He's pro French Revolution, he'll kill, he'll destroy the country an obligation to stay and keep him from being president. But Adams thought, no, Jefferson won. That's a crucial moment. And ever since then, there's been a peaceful, except for 1861, there's been a peaceful transition of power, with all sides accepting the results. We hope that happens again next January. Whoever loses accepts it. So Jefferson starts a new party dedicated to strict interpretation of the Constitution, to farming, civil rights, or the Bill of Rights, there's problems with it. It's based on, in part, the power of slaveholders, like Jefferson, Madison, and others. So the first party, which Jefferson really thought, and Mary was influenced by Jefferson, that this is the party of the people. The small-r Republican people. But Jefferson left out American Indians completely, and he left out enslaved people, they had very little interest in free African-Americans in the North or a handful in the South. So it's a flawed concept from the beginning, but politically at the time, it worked for his purposes. Now, the second one means these crises is a little more, a little less... Familiar. Wait, wait, before,
1: Jason, before yeah. we go to the second crisis, yeah. who do you think the greatest leader out of the first crisis was? Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson... But what do you make of the fact, let me push back a little bit here. What do you make of the fact that Jefferson behind the scenes was so nasty toward George Washington? And Martha Washington, of course, just didn't want to have anything to do with Jefferson. Right.
0: Yeah, uh, well, Jefferson did not like face-to-face confrontation, like a lot of people, like most people, he never fought a duel. He wasn't physically aggressive in that regard. but. People being people, there's resentments, there's jealousies. I don't, I don't know a lot about his relationship with Washington, but I do think he respected him enormously. But I think he thought it was tragic that Alexander Hamilton was manipulating him for his program. So not, not you know, there's rivalries. I mean, Hamilton is shot to death by Jefferson's estranged vice president. when I tell when I teach American history, I try to get my students to think. Let's look at these people as human. We don't want to put them on a pedestal. Because then we might think, well, we could never do what they did. They're great, we're not so great. Who are we compared to them? That, that doesn't, that's not helpful. And that's not true. The other fallacy, another fallacy is looked down on the past. Oh, those stupid people, man. And they made all these mistakes. And they did make mistakes. We have to be aware of those and try to correct them. But we too will be judged by future generations in ways that we'll would be positive and negative for what we did and what we failed to do what we did correctly. So Jefferson had a real grip on the American imagination and Buren went to visit Jefferson on Monticello in 1823 or four, as a young senator from New York. And Jefferson was his hero. And he got to spend two or three days with his political hero. Most of us don't get to do that in life. Uh, they say, better not to get to know your heroes because you'll be disappointed. But I don't think Van Vier was disappointed in Jefferson. And Jefferson was beloved, even though he was like a reticent and retiring, He didn't like to speak. In today's world, he might be a philosopher, a political thinker, not a politician. So in anyway, in the early 1820s, it looks as if the parties are done. The Federalist Party is gone. A lot of people, including President Monroe, celebrated that. But other issues emerged, notably divisions over slavery in Missouri. So, man, yeah, this would have been right, coming out
1: of the era of good feelings, right? Right, but
0: 1820, roughly. So, people like Thomas Hart Benton of Missouri, a senator, Martin Van Buren, John C. Calhoun, they thought we needed a new party, the U.S. needed a new party to fight against sectional struggle, uh, tensions, because that would destroy the, the country, over Missouri, the price of whether Missouri should be a slave state or a free state. So Van Buren writes a famous letter in 1827 to a friend of his in Virginia, Thomas Ritchie, a news, newspaper editor. And Van Buren said, we need a new old party. We need to resurrect the good old days of the early republic. So it's very nostalgic and backward looking as early as 1827, he says we need to unite the planters of the south with the plain republicans of the north, farmers, mechanics, who he meant for the north, but in the same planters of the south, he was giving us free pass to slavery, state's rights, let's not let the government intervene in slavery, that's a mistake, big mistake, we pay the price for it later. So the racial question is very much involved in all these early parties. They all to try to push it to the side, eliminate voting rights for free black people in the North. In the South, it's even worse, of the institution of slavery. So the Endurance party eventually comes to power. He puts the party behind a very personally popular figure of Jackson. But in Jackson, he's very combative. He's not like Jefferson. He'll say what he means with your face. He'll challenge people with duels. Eventually, a party emerges in response to Jackson's party. They don't like Jackson's, what they consider autocratic personality, the remo- removal of the Indians in a particularly brutal way, his war against the United States Bank, his taking the federal money from the bank, and his general autocratic demeanor. They call him King Andrew. And another party emerges in the 1830s called the Whig Party, W H I G. Whig is an old English term, meaning most opposed to king, old American idea. So, we have these two parties that compete for about 20 years, 1840s, 30s, 40s, early 50s, but another crisis emerges in the 1850s. The slave states are increasingly aggressive, may get a future the slave act passed in 1850-51, may get Kansas, the Kansas-Nebraska Act to repeal the mining line, was set up a Missouri a compromise, which prohibited slavery north of a certain line of latitude. Uh, and so suddenly the slave slavery, which many northerners assumed and hoped, would fade out over time, was now expanding. Again, much of the shock of many. So the Whig Party, which was a national party, collapsed. A new party emerges. The Republican party naming itself after Jefferson's original party, they were full stop committed to limiting slavery's extension. The Northern party, the sectional party, they have no support in the South. They do pretty well in the first election. In 56 and 1860, they win with uh, Northern vote only. And as we know, the South secedes. So, the first crisis, the person who emerges is Jackson, or excuse me, Jefferson. The second crisis, eventually, it's Jackson. And then the Whig Party, their leader is Henry Clay, never becomes president. But clearly, the fourth crisis, Abraham Lincoln. The party devoted to economic development, state sponsored internal uh, improvements. Lincoln grew up poor in Kentucky. He thought poverty was a terrible thing. The federal government should help lift people out of it through uh, transportation networks, banking, credit. Let's improve the country. That was a Whig motto. And he, he and his party emerge and get through the Civil War victorious. Well, industrialization takes hold in America and it creates great economic inequality, much like we have today. There's gaps between rich and poor. Urban areas and rural areas, but also especially within cities, And a group of farmers in the South and West create a third party because, in their mind, the two main parties, Democrats and Republicans, are still refunding the Civil War. That's what they're doing. They're not addressing the problems of the moment, the current crisis.
1: Do Do you regard Reconstruction as a as a subsequent cri- a crisis between the sort of the emergence of of sort of a more populist party and uh, the Civil War?
0: Well, Reconstruction succeeded constitutionally with the amendments to the Constitution, but it did not fulfill its promise because it was crushed largely in the South. And that's a crisis too, but no political party came out of it, really. The Democratic Party was uninterested in Reconstruction, the Republican Party was interested in it for a while, About a decade or so, by the middle of the 1870s, they basically said, President of France, Attorney General said, more or less, we're tired of this. We've done all we can do.
1: We can't do anymore. The country was just exhausted after all the sectional crises in the Civil War and now Reconstruction. We wanted to table the the race question as well at that point. Yeah,
0: and the country focused on Western expansion and industrialization at that point. So the new party that emerges is the populist party. It's about farmers, especially in the South and West. They don't win any; they don't win the presidency, but they do deeply influence both parties. Their leader is eventually is well, William Jennings Bryan, was sort of both a Democrat and a populist. And his, their agenda eventually things like direct election of U.S. senators an income tax, the federal government can levy on people. Their program becomes not only part of law, it becomes part of the Constitution. And under Roosevelt and Wilson, especially, Teddy Roosevelt borrowed from their, some of their ideas as well. So the populists succeed in the long run, even though as a party they don't. Well, the great, one of the greatest crises then is the Great Depression. Right to well, progress.
1: before we go there, let's, yeah. let's, let's explore this just a little bit. Yeah. You've mentioned, by my count, one, two, three, four, five crises thus far. Right. Which one of those crises really starts to change the nature of the American regime, the American character?
0: Well, the Civil War, it's hard to get around the Civil War for doing that. Three new amendments are adopted into the Constitution. The idea of secession, which has been bandied about since the 17 early 1800s, is gone, seemingly forever. Uh, it ended slavery, but it did not end. Racism, segregation, mistreatment, violence, brutality, that did not go away. And Reconstruction, Americans, like most people I know, they tend to prefer neat, tidy, happy, Stories with a positive ending. I remember seeing the movie Pearl Harbor 15 years ago, maybe, Bad day for the United States, but the movie doesn't end with December 7th. The a Doolittle's raid on Tokyo. So we could leave the movie theater thinking it wasn't so bad, right? But Reconstruction, it ends officially in 1977. But as I tell my students, in some way it's still going on, as we see today equality, racial inequities in our country. So Reconstruction is not a happy ending. And Black people briefly claim their rights as Americans to vote for office, hold office. By 1900, that was virtually wiped out across the South. And that part of American history needs to be addressed more directly uh, um, uh, we need more people to know of it. It's not enough to know just the Civil War and the Revolution and, and so on. So the Civil War did change the country, but as Martin Luther King said a century after it, we still haven't gotten it right yet. There's still problems. Instead of yes. Memorial, in like 1963.
1: Yes. And also uh, another question, you know, I'm you're an Americanist, I'm a Europeanist, and so I always like to ask my Americanist friends this question: Is there a sense in any of these crises that there is a Western-wide sense of crisis here that needs to be resolved? It's not just an American crisis; it's a crisis that's also is impacting Europe Mm -hmm. uh, or even the globe. Uh, Mm -hmm. And of course, by the twentieth century, crises actually. Do become quite global, mm-hmm. but what is your sense that these American crises share uh, genealogy with other crises in other parts of the world?
0: Well, other parts of the world did go through industrialization, some progressive era, I would say, reforms in that period, there was, excuse me, political reforms in Europe around the time of the 1930s, 20s. In England and in the United Kingdom, Catholics cannot serving the parliament and that was this that was that reform that they could was very much uh spoken about in ma'am newspaper in albany albany argus oh but the but the which i didn't know until i started researching it and that's the great thing about diving into the to, the, to history the surprises they're always there always there the great depression is global certainly european-wide an enormous impact on european Civilization went tragically with the rise of Nazism and, and other uh, extremist governments across Europe. And the Great Depression had enormous impact on society too. It really changed the Democratic Party dramatically. The Democrats had been the party of states' rights. As late as 1928, Democrats were in the conservative New Yorker Al Smith but wasn't that different from them Buren and his look on government in some ways? Innovation should happen at the state level. The federal government should be limited in its authority. 1928 was the first time an African-American was a delegate to the Democratic Convention in your hometown of Houston. And that man, that delegate, had to sit behind chicken wire because in Houston, black and white people were not allowed to mix together. So he, at a political convention, he was segregated. Well, the Great Depression obliterated the state's rights, Jeffersonian, Jackson, even Manparinite tradition of the Democratic Party, more or less, with the New Deal, government action from Washington. And the Democrats have been the minority party since the Civil War, but the new deal with Roosevelt makes them the majority party for and for the, and from the Congress New Newt Gingrich's 1994, what do you call it, the revolution? Yeah. You've been to FDR's house at Hyde Park, not too far around from, and I remember you telling me that story about him trying to walk on his crutches once he was str- stricken with polio up to the Albany Post Road. It's a long driveway. Roosevelt had a lot of money. You can measure wealth by driveway. They had one of the biggest driveways I've ever seen. But his determination to do that, and, and he is the dominant figure of that era, president for 12 years, only president once to four times. And the New Deal, people still debate it. Did it solve poverty? Did it help a little bit? Did it retard economic recovery? That's what a history is about. Discussion, argument. And there's new books, you know, to guess... Hallenstein Center, who quite critical of the New Deal, a couple of them over the years. Then remember Bert Folsom. <laughs> I know the name. I don't know if I was there for that one or for him. I don't know Bert.
1: If, if the title of Bert's the title of Bert's talk. This would have been back in about two thousand three, was New Deal or Raw Deal, which of course hmm. became a book, and um, that is the only Hallenstein Center event at which somebody in the back row stood up and yelled you are a right-wing extremist, and stormed out of the auditorium. So we, we did have um, some some very interesting uh, discussions about Roosevelt as a result of that.
0: Very un Grand Rapids-like.
1: That's right, but still, I mean, it, it reflects the fact that the country was in a crisis at that time. Strong feelings were aroused. I think all of us at a certain age remember our parents talking about FDR. Right. I mean, he, he was a lightning rod for, you know, mm-hmm. for one side of the Country, the electorate. He was somebody who was heroic. Uh, for the other side, he was a scoundrel. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, even H.W. Brands, who we've had back to our stage many times, you know, wrote a book called "Traitor to His Class" mm-hmm. about FDR,
0: right? And that Roosevelt books are endless, and he, he he created a new party, but there's a racial element in this as well. He was a, the South had been a one-party system, one-party region since the war era, and Roosevelt swept every Southern state all four times he ran. He went to Georgia for a treatment for his polio, so he knew the South. In that regard, and black people in the South could not vote under local law and custom. Roosevelt never really challenged that, and his wife. Eleanor did in the North, but Roosevelt largely left these powerful Southern politicians to their own devices, in fact, because they had such minority. When I was working at Capitol Hill in 1988, there was an old time Democrat from Mississippi who had been elected when Roosevelt was president in 41. He was still there. And if you were an ambitious and even remotely capable Southern Democrat, in the late 19th, 20th century, you're in for life if you want to be. And these guys were, they were chairs of key committees. So they let Mr. Roosevelt know if he wanted his new deal program passed and they were the ones who were the gatekeepers in the Congress, they would, he'd be better off saying little or nothing about the racial question, especially in the South. That's basically what he did, more or less, that's what he did. Now that, that's a a flaw in his political leadership. But he also thought, if I raise that question, the country's gonna sink into further chaos and depression and who knows what. So he made that deal with Southern Democrats.
1: Eventually, the Democrats, because they have
0: African-American voters in the North, African-American politicians and the Civil Rights Movement, that changes dramatically uh, in 1960s. so, FDR is the key leader of this crisis, and he gets the United States through it, both the war and the Depression. In the 60s, after he's long gone...
1: Well, as a matter of fact, before we go to the 60s, yeah. let's pause. I mean, I grew up hearing a lot of really nasty things about FDR in, in my parents' household. But I'll say this, uh, and I think it was, um, well, several of the historians have pointed out, the United States was the only belligerent in World War II that came out of the war stronger than when it entered the war. And that was great generalship, of course. I mean, where you're talking about Marshall or Ike or out yeah. in the Pacific, but yeah. you had a president, a commander in chief who tapped great talent to get right. that outcome.
0: Right.
1: So, I mean, it, it, I think we all have, all of us who had fathers who fought in World War II whether we liked him politically or not, can mm-hmm. be grateful for the president to make sure that the United States never bore the brunt of the burden of World War II.
0: Right. You now I was reading something about Harry Truman recently, who was Roosevelt's last vice president. And he wasn't, he didn't really know Roosevelt that well. Well, supposedly he said, FDR was the coldest person he ever met. He didn't give a damn about me, he didn't give a damn about you or anyone else, but he was a great president. (laughs) There's the paradox of political leadership. Uh, Joe Biden running for president today, even his worst political enemies will go out of their way to say that he is the person you want to have around you in a personal crisis. Death of a family member... Joe Biden at that is, and it's genuine, and you can't fake that over and over again. And that's that's right. much to his credit. I think, because people, Republicans say that, Democrats, all all of them will say that. Roosevelt really wasn't that kind of person. When he was in Miami between his first election of 32 and inauguration, there was an assassination attempt on his life, and he was with the mayor of Chicago it's February, so Chicagoans like to be in Miami for February, and the mayor of Chicago was killed. Roosevelt was one of Roosevelt's allies, but the bullet was intended for Roosevelt, and That's he right. escaped harm, and afterwards his staff noticed it didn't bother him in the least. He wasn't shaken, he wasn't bothered by it, he wasn't frightened, he just acted as if it never happened, and he came close to being killed that day. And that, so he's a mysterious figure. I mean, I think that's why there's so many books about Roosevelt. Who was he? I mean, he was, he was born into privilege, born into wealth, single, only child, kind of a mama's boy in many ways. Uh, went to Harvard. He wasn't a football hero. He was, I think, on the cheerleading team, nothing wrong with that, but he wasn't captain of the Harvard football team. And he was a rich man. By the time he was 40, he had a good wife already. He had learned from vice president, he'd been a state senator, the assistant secretary in the Navy, and he's struggling with polio. And if he had decided, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in the wheelchair with a shawl over my lap, watching the Hudson River flow by, collecting my stamps, watching my kids and grandkids, nobody would have held it against them at that time in history, with a view disability. Nobody would have questioned his courage. They would have said, what a shame. He had a lot of promise. What a shame he got this horrible disease.
1: But he overcame it.
0: It's an astonishing, it's an astonishing story of will. Even though, you know, Roosevelt's only smiling. He's the first president you see smiling in public. And He's a unique character. I mean, his policies can and should be debated inter- domestically and internationally. But his personality is fascinating. And he even admitted, you know, when I was a young man in politics, I wasn't a very nice guy. He was you know, full of himself, but yet he had, you know, people in little cabins in West Virginia had their picture on his wall. And all over the country, there were people like, he somehow cares about us. And whether he did or he didn't, debate debated. He was an actor in part. But anyway, he's the dominant figure of that period of
1: crisis, they'd say. Absolutely. Well, while you're drinking your water there, this last summer, I took a research trip down the Ohio, and at one point I was studying Marietta, Ohio, you know, the first legal settlement of the old Northwest, and then Parkersburg, which is an old Virginia settlement, now West Virginia. You're absolutely right. They're in the old magnificent Blenner-Hassett Hotel in Parkersburg, West Virginia. Big portrait of Franklin Roosevelt and, you know, quite a few uh, photographs, memorabilia from when Roosevelt came through. And then later, when one of the subjects of Europe biographies, John F. Kennedy, came through as well. Right. So let's move to the 1960s. Yeah.
0: Well, the 60s, we're still debating the 60s too. The country is basically in prosperity in general terms. There's a war on poverty. There is a sense of optimism. The Civil Rights Act the 64. The Voting Rights Act of 65. But those important measures, as crucial as they were, largely benefited Southern African Americans. They didn't directly improve the lives of many people in the North, right away. So the question of police, uh, policing, there was police brutality. The police forces then were, were overwhelmingly white men in places like Detroit, LA, New York, and so on. So there's a real disconnect. African-Americans had moved to the cities, starting in World War I, and they kept on coming well into the 60s and 70s. Whites in the North did not particularly welcome them. The Democratic Party eventually did their votes starting with the New new Deal, but it was still great segregation in the cities, deep inequities in terms of income, education, justice, criminal justice matters. So the 60s, there's an unpopular war increasingly. There's an urban factor here that's crucial, but it's also a youth, a, a cultural revolution among young people, some young people, that's really important here. Some of it is apolitical, others others is very political. So there's a lot happening in the 60s. And the um there's there's deep political divisions, but the parties are more intellectually diverse than today. You have northern Republicans who are pro-civil rights, like the people from New York, New England. Pennsylvania, Midwest. More Republicans voted for the Civil Rights Act than I think Democrats did. However, it was the Democratic president who was promoting it and Republican nominee that year, Mr. Goldwater opposed it. So there's also concerns Democrats, obviously, in the South, but the North as well. And the combination of the war, youth, upheaval, urban unrest, really, especially that year of 1968, assassinations of Dr. King, of Kennedy, the Democratic convention explodes and protests uh, in Chicago that year, Mayor Daley closed police force to shoot to kill looters, that uh, was a mile in time, and no one real, well, I would say that. The politician emerges out of that era as Richard Nixon. He wins a three-party, three-way race in 68, and then amazingly enough, four years later, he wins 49, states. the Democrats are deeply divided. But Nixon has too many flaws, personal foibles, and he gets them off in the Watergate scandal. He does do some good things. He signs environmental legislation law. He signs um, workforce safety laws. He even quietly helps desegregate some of the Southern school districts. I mean, if Roosevelt's complicated, Nixon may be even more so. And he Briefly, look when he won that 49 state victory in 1972, he had found a way to unite the country. Now, his critics said he bit it with racial cues, with backlash politics. There's some truth to that. But then, less than two years later, he's gone, the results of the Watergate scandal. But we still look back to that era what went wrong, what went right. Change was in the air, the law was, was, you know, key civil rights laws were passed. It was a kind of optimism until about the mid-60s, and then it wasn't so much, which is a bit puzzling, how quickly it changed. Uh, And then our current crisis, if you look at globalization, a lot of people left behind, wall races, growing economic inequality, deep cultural divisions, some stemming from the 60s, political polarization, very controversial president, one of the more divisive ones in many ways. Maybe he doesn't see it like that, but uh, there is a lot of division. And of course, recently, the police killing of George Floyd. So this is a moment of crisis. Again, the pandemic, the economic, Troubles that stem from it, the shutdowns, urban unrest, race relations. And it's not a happy moment right now in our, in our politics, our society.
1: Let me ask you, Jason, what do you think of, of all the crises that you've mentioned? What do you think was the worst?
0: Well, the Civil War, because it came. turned into general bloodshed when so many people died. But good did come out of it with the end of slavery. The Civil War and the Great Depression, so far the two biggest ones. The current moment, we don't know yet. I think maybe good will come out of it. Better policing, needed reform. I do think I just finished reading recently uh, Martin Luther King's Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community. Great book. It's relatively it short. He's a great writer, it's very clear, and it's his last book before he was killed. And, and in the book, and it's really well worth reading, he talks a lot about white people. Who are they? What do they want? How do we work with them? He said we have to work with them. We're only 10% of the population. But he did say that he thought white people were only vaguely aware of the history of the country. That they they knew about slavery, they knew about the Civil War, and after that it was very vague. And I think and that's probably true. I mean, people went to schools in the 1930s and 40s, they learned very little about slavery or African American experience. And it, it, it's, it's difficult history. Uh, the the, 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 not just the institution of slavery, which is horrific, but the way free black people in the North were denied rights, the failure of Reconstruction, the establishment of Jim Crow, all this went on well into the 20th century. That's why Dr. King said we needed, we needed to do this again. Lincoln was trying to have a second birth of freedom. Well, a new birth, we need one, another one in 1960s, 1960s America. And, um, so now it's our turn now it's our it's our turn I mean, we I have two little boys and certainly we want a good life for them and all, all everybody's kids I mean very few people want an America defined by division and violence and racism and strife and unending uh bitterness and suspicion and and, and I think most people would like to help be part of the solution I would hope uh i We've got a lot more education now on things like African-American history, literature, and culture since the 60s, and that's good. elected an African-American president, re-elected him. So I really hope, you know, my boys are my age, then America will have gotten more advanced, more advanced on this question. Somehow, it won't be easy. It definitely definitely will not be easy. And uh, I think everyone probably, especially white people have an advantage to look as JFK said, examine your conscience. What can we do better? There's a lot to be done. There's not one thing, there's a lot of things. And I just saw recently that uh, African-American restaurants across the country being flooded with uh, new customers and interests. That's great. Uh, Education is important. Uh, More scholarships for people who come from low-income families and uh, and good. Yes. Yeah.
1: Very good. Well, let's change the register of our conversation just sure. a little bit and hit on a few other topics while I've got you. What's your favorite book of American history?
0: There's so many. Uh, Arthur Schlesinger's The Age of Jackson, even though it's baited as a piece of literature, really. Uh, Gordon Wood's book, The American Revolution, Radicalism in the American Revolution. He's my first son in the Civil War. But there's another book that is not as well known as it should be, written by a journalist. Journalists are great writers. At least historians are always a little envious that journalists write so well and get a lot of publicity. The book is called Common Ground. And it was written in the 1980s by J. Anthony Lukash. And he was a reporter for the New York Times. And his book got all sorts of war. It's well deserved and it's set in Boston in the 1970s during the busing crisis. And he takes three families, an African American family, an Irish Catholic family, and a Yankee family, Old uh, New England, fair descendants. from those folks. And the incredible achievement of this book is that he treats each family with equal respect. He tries to see it through their eyes. He doesn't set up an easy economy. He, he's, he's very liberal in his approach. He, he acknowledges racism and, 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 and open hatred, especially among many whites or many black people at the time. But he does, as I said, the achievement is he looks at every family, he takes them seriously, and he doesn't castigate them or diminish them. And that book came out 35 years ago, and I thought that's a long time, and we think we might have made more progress since then, but that's a book that has come to my mind recently in this current moment.
1: That sounds as if more more of us should be familiar with that book and read it. Thank you for that recommendation for those books. So uh, how has the current crisis, you know, the pandemic, the economic depression, the mass protests and also the positive things. For example, you mentioned that more African American restaurants are being visited by people from a variety of races. So, very, very good development. How has all of this changed the
0: way you think about our American history? Well, it's in the writing this book in 1836. It, it definitely has me rethinking. Man, parent. when he was in the New York Constitutional Convention of 1821. Now, he voted to strip away to break the right to vote to nearly all black men, except for the very richest. And I thought, well, that had devastating consequences, that kind of attitude. Why did he do that? Well, he was biased, he was on racist assumptions. but he also was trying to curry favor with the South. He was probably thinking of running for president eventually. And when he did run, he was accused of being in favor of Negro suffrage because he had voted against one measure which would, have, which would have eliminated all black men from voting. Now he voted against that, but he didn't vote for another one which did almost the same thing. So I have to highlight that more in my book than I have in the first draft, I think. And race is inescapable. And when you think sports history, environmental history, political history, it's It has to be there, and there are many different ways of looking at it, certainly, but it can't be ignored or left out because that's not real history that's something else uh, and it's it's often painful to read i mean the things that enslaved people went through uh, uh, and, it really is and it's 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 hard to imagine it. It's hard to imagine if you haven't lived through it. And so we need more education on it, certainly. I can do more with it, others can do more, and it, it, it is, um, I think the more education we have on this topic, the more likely we'll be able to make progress on it over time.
1: Well, we've just got to, as a nation, we really yes. do have to. I had a speaker on uh, last week, who Ken James, who talked about white allyship with African-Americans in their efforts. And I think this needs to be broad. It's mm-hmm. a good, good discussion, a good recommendation. So who or what inspired you to become a historian?
0: Well, uh, I grew up in Albany, which is a very old city, Albany, New York. And my father was in politics. And I've always loved history and politics. And when I got to college, I thought history was more like a hobby. I was bad, <laughs> badly wrong about that. I made it in government, which I'm glad I did, but I should have taken more history. And ironically, I went to college in a little town in New York State, in northern New York. And there was this local uh, 19th century politician's home, that was a historical site, Silas Wright, It was Martin Van Buren's best political friend. I didn't know that. I wasn't interested in it. I didn't make the connection. I just walked past it. I was studying Russian then. So when I got involved in politics and I went to Capitol Hill and the final references to history, I thought, well, I want to know more. I'm not, you know, I have a very superficial understanding. I want to know more. So that's when I went back to graduate school to American history. Plus there were shows like Eyes on the Prize, a civil rights show in the late 80s and yes. And I, my understanding of American history was not great, but it was really enhanced by that quite a bit. Reading Robert Carroll's first book on Lyndon Johnson, The Path to Power, Johnson's upbringing in Texas. And, and so for me, it was kind of a natural thing to go into history. Um, but I wish I'd done it a little earlier sometimes, but eventually I got around to it. I'm glad I did you teach at
1: Aquinas College here in town, Jason. Has faith played a role in your work as a historian?
0: Well, when I got to graduate school in Iowa, if someone had told me that i was writing my dissertation on the role of Catholics in the American Revolution and the American, the American Republic, I wouldn't have believed it. That never entered my mind. It just didn't occur to me that Catholics are part of the era. So when I was hunting around for dissertation topic, somebody whom I can't remember now, but somebody gave me some great advice. He said, you're gonna be living with this topic for years. That's how it works in grad school. So pick something that's close to you, that's important to you. And where I grew up in Albany, most of the politicians I knew were Catholics. That seemed natural. Not all, but most. And I got to graduate school and there was very little about Catholics in American politics that I was reading about, in really of the literature, really. So I thought, I'd like to know more about this. And I know it's real because I lived through it. What's the history of it? So it wasn't necessarily, and I, I picked my words the right way here in case priests are listening, but I didn't, I wasn't pulled into it strictly for religion, the political aspects of religion. Now, different religious groups sort of make their way through American history. And Catholics, I didn't know this at the time, have had a tough, at various points, it's been tough for them. And it's not a coincidence we've had one Catholic president out of 45, even though Catholics are a significant chunk of the population. And so faith, I take religion seriously, and intersection between politics and religion interests me. Okay, very good.
1: Uh- so I'm curious, Jason. You've written books. Uh, you love to teach. What would be the capstones? Say of the Super Bowl,
0: the World Series of your career. Right now, please. Today, this this is uh, this uh, uh, but this is an honor for sure. Capstone. I would say speaking Jackson Jackson Kennedy at the Ford Museum. You were there for that. That was yeah. a big deal. Speaking at um, in New York University in 2000. 13 on Catholics and DeWitt Clinton after the anniversary of a um, court case, which Clinton helped defend Catholic rights. I also gave a paper, of him here in Albany, my hometown. That was quite a thrill. Um, you know, I've been lucky, very fortunate to go to teach and write and speak and read and. and it's an extremely enriching job, not financially, but in other senses, it very much is. And uh, I have no regrets about becoming a
1: historian. Well, you're you're a very passionate historian and teacher, and I think that's why we love you, you know, and uh, your students too. Uh, we hear always good things about you from the classroom. Well, we've got some viewers queuing up to ask questions, so let's bring them into the conversation, Jason. Right. Uh, well. Somebody who appeared on the uh, webcast just a couple of weeks ago, Brian Battle, actually has a question for you. He says hi. As a historian, uh, he wants he wants you to address what you feel are the most significant changes, both positive and negative, in how American history is taught in our country. Thanks, Brian, that's hey, a great Brian, question.
0: Good to hear from you, great question. Uh, I would say, I can see it here, the question is, what are the, um, uh, uh, b- biggest positive changes in the American history is thought? Is that the question? Yes, the positive and negative? negative. Positive and negative. In the last, what, 50 years or so, I suppose? Yeah, in the teaching of history. That's right, it, in the classroom. It has become more true to the way people live history. We include African Americans and women and immigrants and American Indians and... It is, it is much more, to use a commonly used phrase, inclusive. And that's good. That's a good thing. It does, yes, make, it is. Yeah, it, it does make it a little harder to teach it, to cover everything that should be covered. The negative, uh, I know that some people who are very much committed to the new history maybe downplay the older political history a little too much. That can be a problem. But in general, the changes have been good, and we're still working through them. The narrative is um, always being reshaped and being changed, and that's a good thing. But I think in general, we've, it's been almost a revolution in the way we teach history. History is important. Christopher Columbus being, his statues are being uh, interpreted differently now and pulled down even a few cases. Uh, So maybe what the pandemic did for public health programs, this woman will do for the study of history. And we're going to have business leaders, even doctors, lawyers, government officials, uh, journalists certainly, certainly lawmakers, they should be safe in American history. If they're going to be playing leading roles, in this country, activists, union activists, all sorts of people, all people, they have to be steeped in American history. That doesn't say that everyone should become a history major, but we could probably use a few more. The number is gone down in recent decades, But it is very important. And, this, and the thing that's a bit sad is that history can be seen in stodgy fashion, but that's the last thing it is. Especially that's right. Given the change that I just mentioned. Yeah, if you go back to a college classroom maybe in 1970, maybe you would think they're leaving out a lot of stuff here. But 50 years later, we've included a lot more people in the story. That's way it should be. Well, Jason, you've got a
1: real fan club out there. We've got everybody from your uh, former roommate uh, in upstate New York uh, named Carl to uh, others who are just enjoying this presentation very much. I do have a question that came in, it said, when you consider the current crisis, what past administration would you recommend that our nation's leadership look to as an example of how to navigate such a crisis? That's a great question. It is. It is.
0: Well, I'm biased, but I would say John F. Kennedy. I would say John F. Kennedy. Why? he, He made mistakes, but he could adjust. He adjusted in civil rights. He later said that he did not realize when he became president in 1961 that the civil rights issue would, be, would become so big for him as president. And he was a little bit slow to get off the mark, as his critics have said with justification. But by May of 63, he was fully on board with the Civil Rights Act. And he basically said, we, this, we can't continue like this, this is wrong. It's as clear as the, as old as the scriptures, and clear as the American constitution. So he some said he wasn't passionate about the issue. That may be true, but he did move on it. He established a pretty good relationship with Dr. King and others. And uh, on the Cold War, he also adjusted after Cuba. He just thought that we can't go through this again. Next time he might not be so lucky. And he advanced better relations with the Soviet Union through the Test Ban Treaty and other items. So, his presidency was brief, but I think he showed an ability to adapt, and that is important. Now, critics might say, well, where were his core beliefs? Where was, what was his bedrock philosophy? And like most American presidents, he wasn't a philosopher, although he was very interested in history, but I think his uh, willingness to change, to listen, to grow, was, was, were good traits, especially in such a complex world as this one. Other presidents uh, of recent times, who have, I mean, Richard Nixon did some good things domestically and foreign policy. George W. Bush signed the Disabilities Act, certainly good. President Obama had a very calm temperament and was not one to divide people uh, most of the time unnecessarily. That was a good thing. I mean, it's almost an impossible job uh, being president. And the current president did not come in with much experience in government, it's fair to say. And I don't think that's a good thing. And I think we should have people who serve in office. It doesn't mean you have to be a senator for 50 years, 41, but I think it's like any other job, You want someone with some experience in it.
1: Very good. And I should point out to viewers, there is a picture behind you of the Brothers Kennedy. We've got... Jack and Bob there. Yes. So if if people wanted an illustration of where your heart is, there there they are. That's great, and they're looking at the way your set is. They're looking at the globe, and I think that's uh, that's appropriate.
0: The um Bobby Kennedy's anniversary of his death was just last ten days ago, and I put on my Facebook page his speech in Indianapolis the night Dr. King was killed. That's right. Yeah. It's quite profound in the moment. Yes, it is. Reconciliation. People come in together. And it it wasn't, there's something about the authenticity of that, of those remarks. Now, he wasn't a a big man. He didn't have the speaking voice of his brother, Reagan or President Obama. But he made his point. And, And, you know, others have done well, too, in these situations. But that's one that really stands out.
1: Well, oh, very good. That, that was a very moving speech. I mean, you can't, you can't see that without, I mean, you just see his face go white. It's a black and white, but you can just see it go whiter, ashen, and he is struggling so much to check his emotions. It's, it's a very powerful, very it, powerful speech. It,
0: yeah, it was a very tragic, horrible moment.
1: Horrible moment in our nation's history anything else you want to leave with us jason before we uh, close out here today
0: yeah i would just like to reiterate what i said a few minutes ago how important history is to study and it's also pleasurable it makes travel worthwhile you can't spend all day in the night clubs i tell my students you have something to do in the daytime before the clubs open up and, and, and more seriously it's never too late to learn it and there's endless number of sources good books documentaries I think more than ever, we need it. We need the serious study of history in our
1: country. Amen, brother. Well, thank you, Professor Jason Duncan, for being a delightful guest on today's live Lunch and Learn webcast. Yours can now appreciate why we enjoy talking to each other, you and I, so much, and why we've invited you to the Howenstein Center to speak. And we hope you'll come back. I invite those who've tuned in to fill out the brief survey and let us know what you thought of today's program with Jason. I also invite you to zoom in or join us on Facebook at the same time Thursday, June 18th, for our next live Lunch and Learn webcast featuring Dr. Michael Dykstra, who graduated from GVSU as a Peter C. Cook Leadership Academy Fellow in April 2015. After leaving Grand Rapids, Michael studied medicine at Harvard and just graduated, we are proud to say, and we will share, he will share rich insights. Into both the medical and social challenges presented by the current pandemic. So tell your friends and colleagues about us. So, till Thursday, stay tuned to all our Howenstein Center offerings and stay well. Beyond Aporia is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. The theme music was composed by Andrew Whitney. The Hauenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Hauenstein's legacy of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the pressing issues that Americans face. To learn more about the Hauenstein Center, please visit us at www.gvsu.edu hc. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. This is Gleaves Whitney.